This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 7 today. This morning we are closing out this series we've been in for the past several weeks that we've entitled on twisting the truth. In this series, we've been looking at different conversations that our culture is having and looking at what God has to say about those things. You see, friends, this is the inspired Word of God, written through people, but not by the imagination of any one person. This was written by people, through the Spirit of God moving upon people. This is God's Word, and therefore it is inerrant without error. It is infallible without fault, and it is authoritative. To read this Word is to hear the voice of God speak. Now, I recognize that in a gathering like this, not everyone might believe that. And if that is you, I just want to encourage you to consider this, Jesus said that the Bible is God's Word. And so if you have questions about the Bible, I would encourage you to first focus on the question, well, who is Jesus? Research His history. Read the Gospel accounts of His biography. Understand His story. I'd encourage you to grapple with the truth claims that He makes about Himself and to do so with an open heart and an open mind. I believe God would meet you in that as you do. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to understand there's no following Jesus without coming under the authority of Scripture because this is where Jesus says that we find life. And so there's no life in Christ without coming under God's Word, which Christ said is true life. Now, there are many things that we could talk about as we have in this series about various issues that our culture is going through and and what the Bible has to say about them. There are many things we could talk about, but our pastoral burden was to address the issues that we see most pressing upon you, the people of Christ Church. We're grateful for anyone who might be listening in, but this series was birthed all the way back in August at our pastor's retreat as we went together and prayed and sought the Lord and just stepped back and considered what are the things that we see kind of pressing in upon our church. And so if I was preaching at my previous church in South Jersey, I probably would have picked different things because people are going through in South Jersey is very different than what people are going through here in South Philadelphia. But we are speaking specifically to things that we see affecting us here, and we're doing that because we love you. And as your pastors, we are committed to caring for you. We're not looking to cater to some kind of online crowd or national footprint. We're seeking to care for the people who are present here, the people that God has brought by His Spirit. And we believe that means helping you see how the Bible speaks to things that we know that you are going through and questions and conversations that you are having. And one of those things that we know that is happening is that our culture is having a conversation and many people are trying to figure out how to engage in this conversation about race and ethnicity. Few things are more divisive in our culture to talk about than race and ethnicity. On the one hand, you have those who believe that racism is the most pressing issue in our country today. And so psychologist Beverly Tatum writes this when she says, I sometimes visualize the ongoing cycle of racism as a moving walkway at the airport. Unless you're walking actively in the opposite direction at a speed faster than the conveyor belt, unless you are actively anti-racist, you will find yourself carried along with the others. Right? What she is saying is that racism is so prevalent that if you're not actively going against it, then you are just by default going along with it. On the other hand, there are those who acknowledge that while Racist behavior might exist in some small circles. As a whole, it's not really a major issue that we face in America anymore. Author Greg Morse writes this, The habit of explaining many of our interpersonal problems, setbacks, or disparities with other ethnicities through the simplistic answer of assumed racism harms us the most. When skin color becomes the go-to explanation, 
you begin to see, live a life of seeing ghosts often when they aren't there. Two very different views. Two very polarizing views. And into this confused mess, I see Christians often wage, they, 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 we, we enter into these waters armed with tweets and posts and stats and our favorite book recommendations that articulate a particular view that we think that aligns with what is right. But I don't think that's at all how we should engage in this conversation. I love what hip-hop artist Shailin writes, and he is fully born and raised, so shout out to him for that. But I think he is dead on when he writes this. It's a lengthy quote, but please listen. The Bible is the only ultimate authority to govern the faith and practice of Christians. Implicit within this idea of the authority of Scripture is that Scriptures are also sufficient for our faith and practice as well. So when it comes to the issue of race, we should look to the Bible rather than to culture to guide how we think about it. Far too often when Christians discuss this topic in the public square, the talking points sound like they come from their favorite news channels, podcasts, or social media influencers rather than the Bible. This should not be. If we're going to make any progress in these discussions, the Bible must have first and final say on this topic. We will neither honor the Lord nor make progress towards unity unless Christians on all sides of the race issue are willing to have our perspectives enlightened by, challenged by, corrected by, and even rebuked by the Bible. Friends, this is what we must do as Christians. Not get our talking points from the culture, nor try to find Scripture verses to fit into our preconceived ideas. We need to come to God's Word and submit ourselves under the authority of God's Word so that God's Word can enlighten us and challenge us and if necessary, correct us and lead us forward in righteousness. Because God's Word is life. And this is where we find and so this morning, in order to let God's word untwist the truth about race and ethnicity, we are beginning at the end. We're coming to the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, the book that talks about the end of all time. And here in Revelation 7, we are going to see God's kingdom in its full glory. And the reason I think we need to start here is because as we see God's kingdom as it exists there, well, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Seeing God's kingdom as, exists, as it exists in heaven at the end of time is not just to be something that we long for, it's to be something that we are to desire now for. As we see the end, we're seeing the heart that God wants for us to have here in the present. So let's look at how things will be at the end and may this shape our thoughts and hearts and prayers for our present circumstances. This is God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. May we listen and obey. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you bow with me now in a word of prayer? God, as we have now read from your word, I pray you would be with us through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say with open hearts. For your word is...
And may the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that inspired John to write this book of Revelation, may this same Spirit now illuminate Your words, Your inspired words to our hearts. More than anything, Lord God, we pray that Your Spirit would come and would strengthen us to see Christ. That at the end of this time together in Your Word, we would all just know Jesus a little bit better so that we would be edified, so that you would be glorified, and so that the enemy would be horrified. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to see three things from this text, and then I'm going to help us at the end to consider some various ways that we can apply it right now. And so we're going to look this morning at three things. We're going to see the multi-ethnic mission of God. And then we're going to see the cosmological conspiracy of Satan. And then we're going to close by looking at the triumph of the Lamb. The triumph of the Lamb. So let's begin, though, by seeing the multi-ethnic mission of God. When John has this vision of the end, he sees one large crowd. A crowd so large, he says, that, that no one can number it. The biggest crowd I was a part of was... It had to be the Eagles Super Bowl victory parade. I'll never forget that day. I got up early with my kids to get my spot. Uh, we were there probably about 6.30 in the morning, right up against the fence, so we did not want to miss it. And it was a good thing because by the time that they came down several hours later, there was a multitude of people. Overestimated over a million people were part of that parade. It was an incredible, an incredible experience. But Eagles parade could be counted. They were able to tell how many people were there. But this crowd in heaven is far greater because it cannot be counted. It far surpasses the numbers of people that we saw on that day. This is a great multitude, but please notice who makes up this multitude. This large crowd, beyond what anyone can number, is not just a mass of faceless people, a blob of humanity in general. No, God inspired John to make sure that we would be able to understand what he sees when he says that he sees people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. As John is seeing this, he's not only seeing a large crowd, he's seeing who is in the crowd. He's seeing the peoples in the crowd. As we saw two weeks ago, heaven is full of people. It's not full of disembodied spirits. No, in heaven, we are still people. We are still gender beings. When the Bible says that we are like the angels, notice it does not say we are angels. Right? When we go to heaven, we don't become angels, genderless spirits. No, no, no. We retain our humanity, a new humanity, gloriously created in Christ. But, but we are still people. We retain our genders and we retain our ethnicities. John is seeing different looking people. He can distinguish that there are different tribes and there are different nations present. See, in heaven there will be Asian and there will be African and there will be Caribbean and there will be Hispanic and there will be some kind of weird German-English mix from South Jersey. (laughs) There will be different ethnicities in heaven because it has been God's plan since the dawn of time not just to have one kind of person worshiping Him around His throne but to have people from every part of his creation. We see this in his command to our first parents, Adam and Eve. The very first humans. What what did the Lord tell them to do? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he tells them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Like God started creation by making two people, male and female, binary gender, but it was never supposed to be just about them. No, they were to be fruitful and multiply, to have children and spread out. And where are the children supposed to go? To fill the whole earth. They're supposed to go all over the place. Now notice that we all come from the same first parents. This is significant to understand. This is why you're going to notice me using a distinction here when I talk about race and when I talk about ethnicity, because they are two different things. I know that our culture can use them interchangeably. I've often sometimes even used them interchangeably. But we need to be careful because 
there are two different things. The usage of the word race, if you look at that word even historically, it, it can be traced back to eugenics. The, the, the false idea that, that some people are genetically superior to others. Some people come from better blood. You know who talked about eugenics the most? Nazis. It's where they got their idea that they were superior. They were what? They were the Aryan race. A different race. But what we see here in Scripture is there are no different races. We all come from the same bloodline. There's one race, the human race. We all come from Adam and Eve. John Perkins, who has been a civil rights advocate for the past 50 years, he has an incredible testimony that I'd encourage you to look up and read at some point. He became a Christian after being almost beaten to death by a white mob. And when he awoke, he knew that only love could heal his heart. And so he surrendered it into love of Jesus Christ and has been working for racial reconciliation ever since. He has given his whole life to celebrating and working towards ethnic unity and diversity. But, but notice what he says as he writes here in cautions about talking about race. This is what John Perkins says. He says, from this one man, Adam, who's created in the very image of God, the entire human race sprang. Race as we know it really doesn't exist. There's only one race, the human race. And it is man who has created the concept of racial categories. The Human Genome Project has found that all humans, regardless of ethnicity, all humans are 99.9% .9 exactly genetically the same. I love when science catches up to something God said thousands of years ago. We're all the same race. We all come from the same stuff. But while we're all the same race, we are not all the same ethnicity. The word ethnicity comes from the Greek word ethnos, which is the same word that the Bible translates as nations. That's what we're seeing here in Genesis 7, I mean, Revelation chapter 7. It's, when it's talking about various nations, it's talking about various ethnicities being present. See, God told Adam and Eve to go and have children that would spread to all the world, to all the nations, to, that would go and start to have different ethnicities. This is God's good plan. You see, God's glory is so amazing and so multifaceted that He wanted His image bearers to be a kaleidoscope of diverse colors and cultures because God's glory can't be contained by any one kind of people group but must radiate forth through all different kinds of peoples. Again, to quote Shailene, I love it when he says, when it comes to ethnicity, the proper response for the Christian is not to ignore it or gloat about it or to be ashamed of it or feel guilty about it. The proper response is to thank God for it and leverage it for His glory. To my white brothers and sisters in Christ, please don't tell me that you don't see color. I know what you mean. You're trying to communicate that you treat all people equally and that you judge people based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. That's great. We should all do that. But God was intentional. And He gave me brown skin. He didn't give it to me that it might be ignored. He gave it to me that it would be appreciated and that He might be praised for His creative genius. So don't rub God of His glory by ignoring it. Friends, black is beautiful because it is biblical. And so is white. And so is brown. And go down every list of color. God created His world not to be made up of people who look all the same because we all stayed in the same place. No, He created the world to have people spread out across the world and to develop into different nations and tribes to become incredibly diverse. Ethnicity is God's good plan and idea. And the diversity of ethnicities that He has created is meant to display the beauty of His majesty. And so this is why when we get to the end of time, heaven is not in grayscale. God wants us to see color. I love how Esau Macaulay draws our attention to this when he writes, at the end, we do not find the elimination of difference. Instead, the very diversity of cultures is a manifestation of God's glory. Friends, since the dawn of time, God has been on a mission to bring together people from every tribe and tongue and nation to the praise of His glory. And yet we see in Scripture another actor. We see a conspirator working against 
this multi-ethnic mission of God. Let's look at point number two, the cosmological conspiracy of Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the snake, who the Bible later identifies as Satan, come into the Garden of Eden, and they tempt Adam and Eve to doubt that God's way is best. And so Adam and Eve choose to listen to the snake, they choose to disobey God, and in that choice, in that desire to live life based upon me and what I want, based upon my internal feelings and what I think is best for myself, instead of being submitted to God's word, that's the heart of all sin, my way, not God's way. At the heart of that, every other sin now comes into existence. And one of the effects of sin is not only does it divide us between, bring division between us and God, it also creates division between us and one another. What do we see Adam and Eve immediately start to do in Genesis 3 after they fall into sin? They start blaming each other. There's division. In Genesis chapter 4, their children are born. And the one brother, Cain, murders the other brother, Abel. Cain gives birth to a son, Lamech, who says, guess what, my father's a killer, I'm going to be even more of a killer. Division, right from the beginning. And this was Satan's plan all along. He tempted them to sin, to not only create division between them and God, but to, to spoil God's good plan of creation. So Satan wanted to... to to work division. And this division often comes, even as we look at Scripture, it often comes along ethnic lines. Because looking different is a very easy way to justify treating someone as different. And so throughout Scripture, we see all kinds of ethnic sins being committed. In Jonah, we see the ethnic sin of hatred. Where, where Jonah goes and he speaks against the people of Nineveh as God commanded, and then they return or and repent to the Lord as the Lord desired. God shows them mercy, and Jonah gets upset because he hates the Ninevites, just because they're Ninevites. He hates people of that ethnicity. We, we see throughout the New Testament, Paul's to correct people for the ethnic sin of pride. We see it in Romans 2 and in Galatians 2. It's just thinking that you're better than someone because you are different than them and have a different ethnicity. It's, it's the mindset of, well, there's me, and then there's those people ethnic pride. In Acts chapter 6, we see the sin of ethnic partiality, treating one ethnicity as better, as the Greek widows were not being cared for and treated fairly. Why? Because they were Greek. They were experiencing inequality because they were experiencing the sin of partiality. And then in several places, we see the sin of ethnic oppression in the form of the evil of slavery we think about the Jews to the Egyptians that we read about in Exodus or later to the Babylonians that we read about in the prophets. And friends, behind all of this ethnic sin, we need to understand a satanic influence. It's not by chance that in the book of Ephesians, which one of its major themes is all about unity. And so Ephesians 2 talks how God tears down the wall that divides us between us and him and us and one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about how we are to walk in unity of the Spirit. It's not by chance that Ephesians, which, which so clearly emphasizes unity, it ends by calling us to pray for spiritual warfare. It's drawn our attention to the spiritual realm. Because what's working against our unity? Well, we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Paul draws our attention that what is working against us, including our working against our unity with one another, it, 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 these are not just flesh and blood issues. There are spiritual forces at play. And so while ethnic sins might look like a flesh and blood interest, uh, issue, we, we, are, we are sinning against one another because they look different than us. That's a flesh and blood thing. But God tells us that that flesh and blood thing is coming from satanic influence. There are spirits of darkness at play. And so two years ago when I was preaching and seeking to bring some biblical clarity to how we should respond to George Floyd's murder and everything that was going on right then, someone said, Jeff, I don't think we should be getting political. Now, what's interesting is I had not mentioned any political leader. I had not mentioned any political party. In fact, I had actually spoken out against 
both political parties and the ungodly ways they were both in error through how they were responding. But there can be a grid that as soon as people start hearing a conversation about ethnicity, they start thinking politically. But I was speaking, and just to be clear, will continue to speak about these issues because they are not political, they are spiritual. This does need to be addressed by the church. I love Pastor Tony Evans as he says, God doesn't ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. He is not beholden to any party. He did not come to take sides, but to take over. I wish I could preach this like he does. We, we, we have one God, one Lord Jesus Christ, and one inerrant word to speak from, and it speaks loudly about evil. Friends, there is an enemy who is working evil in this world by warring against God's multi-ethnic mission, and to be silent about this sin is to bow to Satan, and this church is not going to do that. We should be able to talk about these things here. We should be able to talk about the sins of the past and the sins of the present. We should talk about the sins of the past. We should be able to talk about how the calculated mass genocide and land seizure from the Native Americans was sinful and satanic. We should be able to say that. We should be able to say that the African slave trade was sinful and satanic. We should be able to say that the injustice of the relocation camps that Asian people were forced into during World War II was sinful and satanic. We should be able to say that Jim Crow laws and redlining and even churches that forced segregation, those things were evil and satanic. And friends, do we really think that Satan has stopped working? Do, do, do we really think that this enemy is still not active in this world and these are just all in the past? Praise God there's been progress. Praise God. But if we think that racism does not still get, exist, why are we being so naive to think that this somehow is the first sin that's been fully eradicated from the world? This past week, a recording surfaced of volunteer firefighters in Delaware, Canada, not far from here, in which on this call they made terrible racist comments, even mocking the death of an eight-year-old black girl who had been killed during a police incident. That was this week. We don't think Satan's that active and at work in this world. If you do even a cursory study of demographics, you'll find that these things, these are not just hateful, isolated instances of racist people. No, there are systemic issues at play. If you do just even the most cursory study of demographics, you'll find that there's vast inequalities of people of color and distribution of wealth and opportunity, representation in government and criminal prosecution, just to name a few. And those things are not just facts. They are stories. And honestly, the story of systemic ethnic inequality, it hit home for me in a way last year that I never expected it to. I asked my son if I could share this story, and he gave me permission and said yes. And so my children are biracial. My wife is Puerto Rican. It's like to say, once you find a Puerto Rican, you don't need to do no more seeking. Um, <laughs> pastor's shaking their head. That wasn't in the manuscript, so. <laughs> what can I say? We have three kids, three beautiful children. Two of them are of more white complexion like me, but my son Judah is darker like his mom especially in the summer. And last year when we were watching the inauguration and Kamala Harris was being sworn in, my son leaned over to Angie and said, look, Mom, her skin is just like ours. Now, I didn't even know he had a category for that. But in his short life, as he has been watching people on TV and places of leadership, he has become aware that there are just not that many people that look like that's not something we ever explained to him or drew his attention to. It's just something he picked up himself. And when he leaned over to her and said that, I realized I've never thought that about myself before. I've never had that thought. I've never looked at TV and been like, oh, wow, there's someone who looks like me. Because most people in places of prominence in our country do look like me. Now, I don't feel guilty about what I look like. God made me this way. 
And so we should never feel guilty about how God made us. But my son's comment was a fresh illustration to me that there are systemic inequalities. He doesn't see many people who look like him in places of leadership. That is wrong. I think about my friends who battle with addictions. And I think about how a study came out done by American University. It found that while white people and Hispanic people use drugs at the same rate, Hispanic people are almost twice as likely to be convicted of a drug-related crime. There was another study done by people from Yale, Drexel, and American University that found that black people were actually less likely to have drug problems than white people, but were five times more likely to be convicted of drug-related crimes. Now listen, I'm not saying that as a white person I've done something directly to contribute to this, nor am I saying that white people can't also experience hard things. I grew up with my family qualifying for food stamps. I know that white people can have struggles too. But the point is that while I might individually go through hard things, there are systemic issues of inequality that exist for people of color. And this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need Jesus. Because you know what? The world can identify this problem, but the world can't provide a solution. The best, the best solution that our world seems to talk about, and we addressed this a little bit last week, but, but they put forward the idea of critical theory, which, which is able to correctly diagnose some power dynamics at play. But, but their only solution they have is, well, you've got to take power from some, you've got to give power from others, and it just perpetuates a power struggle between people. And it perpetuates conflict. Friends, in Revelation 7, we're seeing something so much better. Revelation 7, we're not seeing a power conflict. In Revelation 7, we're seeing the triumph of the Lamb. So let's look at this final thing together. In Revelation chapter 7, we see all these people, all these diverse people, are gathered around one throne, the throne of the Lamb. In the Old Testament, we see that Jewish people used to slay lambs every year to atone for their sins on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they had to do this year after year after year because no lamb could really and finally take away the sins of the people. But Jesus came once and for all to do what a normal lamb could never do. He came to give his pure, holy, divine life for our sinful lives. He came to be slain as a man for the sins that humankind commits. The evil thoughts that we have. The selfish things that we do. I mean, no one wants a highlight reel of their private life and most shameful things put up on the screen. No, no one wants other people to see that. But God sees all of that. And he is too just to let those evil things go unpunished. But he is too loving to not make a, a way for us to be saved from the judgment that we deserve. And so Jesus comes. And like a sacrificial lamb, the fate that we deserve for our sin, the death that we should have died, the judgment that we should have experienced, Jesus takes it all on the cross and is slain. He is the lamb who was slain. But if you notice here in Revelation 7, he's not just the lamb who was slain. Because what we see here in Revelation 7 is that the lamb who was slain for sin now stands in glory. See, Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. No, he rose again to prove that through his death, he has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And the reason that we sinful people can go and be with God in heaven, forgiven of our sins once and for all, is because the Lamb of God is there. And he has paid for our way with his blood. This is why the crowd is gathered around him and they're gathered around his throne and they're saying in what? In verse 10, they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What we're seeing in Revelation 7 is God's multi-ethnic purposes to have peoples from every tribe, 
tongue, and nations. We are seeing that purpose come true as Satan's conspiracy to divide us is defeated once and for all by the triumph of Jesus the Lamb. Friends, what will ultimately bring people together and create this multi-ethnic, harmonious community that God desires is the redemptive glory of what God has done in Jesus. I love what John Perkins writes when he says, God's vision for the church is one unified body. And the enemy has been hard at work to destroy that vision. If we didn't know the end of the story, this could be discouraging, depressing news. But we know that in the end, God wins. His purposes prevail. We will be the church that God intended from eternity past that's good news. Yes, Christ Church, that is very, very good news. The Lamb has triumphed. We need to get out of this mindset that can be so present often where we think about salvation in terms just of me. And so it's my, my Jesus, my personal salvation, my personal story about me and Christ. Listen, you have a personal story with God. Praise God. You have a personal salvation story that you should glory in. Amen. But God is doing something so much bigger than just you and him. It's not just my Jesus. It's how he wants to be praised by all kinds of people together who are saying, we love you, Jesus. God is not just about saving a person, but saving a people's for himself. God's vision and mission and desire is not just to save isolated individuals and so to perpetuate our division. God's plan is to bring together a whole new humanity, a new redeemed peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation to his praise. God's plan is global. It is cosmological. It is eternal. It is glorious. He's doing something huge in Christ. The triumph of the Lamb completes God's mission to bring together peoples, all peoples, for His praise and glory. Therefore, pursuing ethnic equality and racial reconciliation from the sins of racism, these things should not be a passing fad because they are presently acceptable in our culture. No, they should be a prevailing priority for anyone who believes in the unifying blood of Jesus. So I want to close by giving us four biblical categories very briefly for how I think we can work here and now against Satan's cosmic conspiracy of division and pursue racial reconciliation and ethnic unity in Christ. Number one, we can work against this by embracing our identity. Embracing our identity. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 tells us this, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As Paul is listing each of those categories, he, he is giving each issue in ancient culture that would have divided people. Gender, ethnicity, class. Those divide people back then. And guess what? They divide people still today. And God is certainly not telling us in Galatians 3, that there's no such thing as those, those distinctions. No, as we see in Revelation 7, there are distinctions in heaven. Gender and ethnicity will still exist there. They're part of what God says is beautiful and what he created for his worship. However, our identity is not to be found primarily in our distinctions. But our identity is to be found in being one with Christ. If you place your faith in Jesus, you have a new identity. The most important thing about you, regardless of anything else you've done, the most important thing about you is who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Your identity is in Christ. This is why when we come to Acts chapter 11, we see that it was in Antioch where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Why, why were they first called Christians there? Because the church in Antioch was a melting pot of all different kinds of peoples who, who normally in that society would never be together. And so people are watching what's happening. and They're like, there's just no way to define this new group. We can't say that they're a group who are comprised of people from this political party or that political party or this gender or that class. They had no way to characterize it other than they're followers of Jesus. Let's come up with a word for that. Let's call them Christians. 
See, friends, if you place your faith in Jesus, then being united to him by faith is the most important part about who you are, and that is meant to inform everything else about who you are. Jesus is to be our primary and our common shared identity. I love what Pastor Tony Evan has to say about this, who, just in case you don't know, he's writing this from the context of being an ethnic minority. But he says that we need to stop talking about black Christians and white Christians and Asian Christians because when we do, we put ethnicity in the adjectival position and what does an adjective do? It, it modifies and changes the noun. The, the, the adjective tells you what the noun is like. But, but the only thing that you tell a Christian what a Christian is like is Jesus. And so we need to put our ethnicity out of the adjectival and put Christianity into the adjectival so that our Christianity can inform our ethnicity and how we interpret and experience that. And so for me, I'm not just a man, but I'm a Christian man, a Christian husband, a Christian father, a Christian neighbor, a Christian pastor. My Christianity, the adjective of that needs to inform the noun of all these other things that I am. My identity as a Christian is what is meant to shape me and each and everything about me. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, the same is true for you. And so this not only then unites us as Christians, oh, it does do that. We have one shared common identity. It unites us, unites us, it brings us together. But guess what? It also unites us with other people in a different way, but in a way that we are to love them and to dignify them because guess what? Jesus said that every person has been made in his image. And therefore, even if people don't believe like we do, we should still treat them with dignity and respect because of what God says about them and who they are as his image bearers. And so embracing my identity as a Christian not only unites me with other Christians, it gives me all the tools I need to care about loving people who are different than me. The first thing we can do if we want to start making our way through these things is to embrace our identity in Christ. Second, we need to embrace your identity. You, we need to listen quickly. We need to listen quickly. By quickly, I don't mean listen and then move on. By quickly, I mean the first thing that we should do. James chapter 1, verse 19 commands us, commands us, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. One of the biggest downfalls I see in the conversation about ethnicity is that there's just too much talking going on and not enough listening. People start sharing about their experience and someone else wants to open up about their experience and it's people are arguing about those things. Or someone wants to share about how, man, really hard about that. And someone wants to start bringing up all these stats. Well, you know, really, this is what's going on here. And really, this, this, and that. So you shouldn't be. And we try to explain away instead of just listening to people and their hurt. I recently came across an article from a man named D.J. Jordan. I'm, I'm not sure, actually, if he's a Christian or not, but his words struck my heart. He is writing from the perspective of a black person, but from my listening to Asians and Hispanics and other ethnicities, I know this sentiment applies to them as well. What cuts the heart for many black Americans is not merely that their otherwise decent white neighbors don't seem to notice injustice. Rather, is that they don't notice the people upon whom the injustices fall. When whites ignore or seek to explain a brutal mistreatment of a black person, black man, even with the most precise logic, it drives the feeling even deeper. You don't see George Floyd. You don't see Ahmaud Aubrey. You don't see the lives of so many who look like me then you must not see me either. He's experiencing a lack of listening. So if someone entering into his pain as they see someone, oh, you saw someone who looks like you die. Well, you know he was doing this, you know and this, and you start explaining it away. Instead of just listening and seeing his hurt and seeing his praise. Friends, the Bible tells us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Our first reaction should not be to try to explain and talk, but rather to lean in and listen and try to understand people's pain. And if you don't want to do that, your issue is not with me, your issue is with God and what he says in James chapter 1. And so I want to lean in and listen to my friend who's out on a date with his wife and gets pulled over and interrogated because he's a black man and she's a white person and they were in what's known as a white neighborhood. I've never experienced what it's like to be pulled out of a car and questioned like that. I, I want to be able to lean in and listen. 
and understand just how emasculated and humiliated we felt in that moment. I want to lean in and listen to my Asian friend and how he grew up being the target of racial jokes. It's nasty, unkind things said all growing up. And friends, let's be clear, words can hurt us. And then he talks about how being even in Christian circles, he has to hear Christians who don't mean to be mean, but they still make racial jokes. And it just drives the pain deeper into his hearts. But he has to at laugh and act like everything's fine because he's not really sure if people care. I obviously know a lot of Latinos having married into a Latino family and the things that they have to go through. Friends, I hope that when people encounter a Christian, that what they encounter is someone who's willing to listen and to hear. Not try to bring up my story to dismiss your story. Not talk about how hard life's been for me so that I kind of feel better and I don't have to listen to you. Just listen to people and care about what they're going through. And, and I do want to say this. I, I'm actually really proud of a number of you and how well you've been listening these past two weeks. I know we first started having some of these conversations. We were having them really since the first days of our church, but, but they came upon us in, in, a, in a really pressed way in 2020. And so many of you leaned into that conversation. So many of you tried to listen, and I'm really proud of that. And I see how God's working in you, and I praise the Lord for that. I hope it continues. I hope that we're known as a church that listens well. We need to listen quickly. Third, we need to lament sincerely. Friends, if we're listening, we're going to hear stories that are sad. And when, when we hear stories that are sad, the Bible calls us to lament. There's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. Psalms, God's divine hymn book, 42 Psalms deal directly with either personal or corporate lament. If you're wondering what lament is, I think a pastor named Mark, I have no idea how to say his last name. Uh, I'm too American. I think it's Vergrope or something like that. Um, but, but, he, but he wrote a really good book called Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. It's a really good book. And in that book he writes this, Lament sees suffering not as a problem to be solved, but as a condition to be mourned. Lament is a prayer and pain that leads to trust. See, when we're lamenting something, we're not trying to fix a problem right away. We're acknowledging and affirming that this is wrong, this is hard, this is painful, and it hurts, and we're entering into grief. Now, in entering into that grief, we're not entering into despair because we are trusting God's promises to make all things right. But what lament is saying is that right now, this is not right. And so lament is a prayer in pain. It's coming to God and saying, God, we believe you can do something about this. Would you please come and do something about this? Because this is not right. We grieve over what's happening. That's lament. And you know what? Few things bring people together like sharing pain together and lamenting together. You go to a funeral, and how often there's people who haven't spoken to each other in years, but they come together through their shared experience of loss. I just wonder how much healing there could be if we learn to listen to each other and sincerely just grieve together and lament together. That's why, for me, when I'm saying Black Lives Matter, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to express lament. Because so often that's not been something that's been affirmed in our country. I understand there are many issues with that organization, and I certainly would not endorse the Black Lives Matter organization at all. I have no problem saying that completely and fully. I would not endorse them at all. I mean, their founders have publicly praised terrible people like Fidel Castro. You should have seen it when I was doing chapel for the Phillies, and the Phillies organization told them that they were going to have to wear the Black Lives Matter organization patch. The, the, the Latino players not having it at all. One of them said, Fidel Castro killed my grandfather. I'm not wearing anything to do with that organization. Right, so, so we, can, we can be clear that the Black Lives Matters is, is not a good organization at all, but the statement, oh friends, the statement should be something that we do affirm as we enter into people's pain and affirm truth about them, truth that for many years and a continued experience is still not always affirmed. And so, yes, all lives matter, of course. Of course that is true. No one's arguing for that. But, but if one of my children, I walk into my home and I see one of them crying, Three kids. I see one of them cry. They're saying that their feelings are hurt. Something happened to them. 
I'm going to seek to encourage them and express love for them and tell them that they do matter. And in doing that, I'm not saying that I don't care about my other kids. I'm not saying that, you know, oh, well, hey, listen, I'm not going to comfort you because all, all my kids matter to me. No, I'm saying you're crying. And so, yes, I love all my kids, but I'm going to care for you specifically right now because of the pain you're going through. See, friends, lament is just entering into people's pain. Can you enter into people's pain? I hope as a church we can. In this conversation about race and ethnicity, Scripture calls us to embrace our identity, to listen to quickly, to lament sincerely, and then finally, we're going to do something. I think we need to pray consistently. I think we need to pray consistently. There are a lot more things we obviously could do, for sure. I'm not trying to be exhaustive as I'm giving us these applications. But I do think that we need to close with prayer. Because I think prayer is something that we often take for granted. I think too often we can view prayer... Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I doubt it. Uh, we view prayer kind of as the last resort. Oh, there's nothing we can do about it. I guess we'll just have to pray about it now. But friends, prayer is not a last defense. It should be our first priority. Because prayer is how we go on the offensive. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, he talks about all the defensive armor that we're to wear. But the offensive weapons that the church has is not calls to social action. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But the offensive weapons that the church has is the word and prayer. And so how do we work against Satan's cosmological conspiracy to bring division where God wants to bring unity? Our message is not one of social action. Our message is one of preaching the word and praying to the Lord to work. I'm not saying we shouldn't move to social action. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I'm saying that prayer needs and must be our first priority. This is what makes us different. Because we have access to the throne room of God. And what do we think this world's going to be able to accomplish that could rival what our God can do? As a church, we need to give ourselves to praying to these things faithfully and consistently. That's not a cop-out. That's the most powerful, offensive weapon that we can do to slay Satan with the power of God for the praise of Jesus Christ. And this is what Christ has commanded us to do. Pray for God's kingdom to come here on earth as we see in heaven. And you know what I think that prayer starts with? I don't think that prayer actually starts with changing things out there. I think that prayer starts with changing things in here. Psalm 139 teaches us, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, if we want to work against the divisive tactics of Satan, then we need to be a praying people. And that prayer needs to start for God to work in me. To search out my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way Everlasting. And then as we pray that personal prayer, that should lead us to a corporate prayer in general. That God, would your kingdom come here in our neighborhood? Would it come here in our city? Would it come here in our country? Would it come here in our world as it is in heaven? May we see racial reconciliation here. May we see ethnic equality here. May we see the blood of Jesus bringing together people from every tribe and tongue and nation. May we see it here for your glory and your praise. And so I want to close right now by leading us in prayer. Leading us in prayer for, for us to see these things happen here. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?